Welcome to the Yanks are coming soccer show. I'm Carter Krishnire. He's Neil Blackman and Neil. We had a women's world cup final to preview. So let's get right into it. We do. We do have a women's world cup final. We have the reigning world cup champions and the European champions. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. In theory, at least the best possible matchup with the reigning Euro 2017 champions against the reigning 2015 champions. Jill Ellis does it again. She gets the United States <laughs> to the finals, uh, despite, I suppose, um, a constant drumbeat, Neil, of criticism toward her, her tactics, um, her squad selection. I, I've had you know, my own uh, commentary about it in the past, but I think uh, during this tournament, given the level of opposition, the U.S. has never faced this sort of gauntlet to get to a final of a uh, of a major women's tournament, unless you look at potentially the 2011 World Cup, uh, that, that, that would be the that would be the only other one I, I would throw up there. Um, you know, the Brazil, Brazil, France, and then obviously having to, to play Sweden in what was an epic match in the in the group stage. Uh, it, it's tough to poke holes in what the U.S. has done, even though there were people both here on this side of the Atlantic in the United States and those. Um, covering the tournament in France, uh, and, and I should say other European media poking holes in what the U.S. is doing tactically. Yeah. Uh, I mean, man, there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, look, I think – so they spent a couple years playing this this 4-3-3, and the idea was let's see if we can outscore people, if even if we have defic- defensive deficiencies – we're going to play this possession brand of soccer. It's going to be quick tempo. It's going to be fun. Uh, it's going to be attacking, you know, swashbuckling. And I think they did it against Sweden too, right, Cardick? Which yeah, they, they had this really nice tempo in the midfield. They had this all these midfield triangles between Haran and Mewis and uh, Lavelle. And it looked like, hey, maybe this really is the way they should play. And so what's happened is, um, in the quarterfinals and the semifinals, they haven't really done that. And in fact, you know, they counterpressed some quite effectively against England uh, and, you know, and against France, but really they collapsed into this 5 4 1, absorbed a ton of pressure, and used athleticism to exploit uh, people in the back over the top, right? And so, yeah you know, there's this idea that that's like not a, not as good a way to play, I guess, which is weird um, to me because it's an effective way to play when you have Alex Morgan, who is an underrated technical player, if that's even possible to be underrated when you're Alex Morgan, we've talked about it ad nauseum to our listeners over the last few months, um, but she's proved herself to be that at this world. Oh, Cup, well, but but she's, she's proven to be an underrated player, period, because she's yeah. doing a lot of things off the ball that even I criticized her for not doing uh, in her club career in, in yeah. WSL in the past. Now, granted, in Portland, she had uh, the likes of Christine Sinclair on that team, right? Who yeah. would do a lot of that stuff from, from an advanced position. Um, and, and in Orlando, she's had various... Uh, players flank alongside her, whether it's Sydney LaRue or others that can do that sort of work. Um, but she's proven to be a multifaceted, versatile player uh, in this World Cup, which goes back to, I think, uh, 
you know, the inherent biases among a lot of people who cover the sport and watch the sport, which is that if you don't play like Barcelona's men do, or you don't play like the Spanish men, then you're not playing football. And this is something that's been going on for a decade in this country. And I never thought I'd see it apply to the U.S. women who have generally been the gold standard, the serial winners of world football, including men's football. Uh, but it appears like that 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 moral indignation about not playing football the right way has now been applied to them. Yeah, I don't even know if it's moral indignation so much as like I think some people. So, so there's some people that are framing it as well. That's disappointing because I was sold one bill of goods, and really what I've gotten is something different, uh, and I'm okay with that. Like if that's something you're you're bummed about, then okay. I guess if you're trying to find you know things to be bummed about when you're when your country is in the world cup final, then that's one way of presenting the argument. But like you said, what, what's irritating to me about it is it's become like the narrative has now been shaped into this discussion of whether or not that's an, you know, whether or not Jill Ellis can do things properly or if like the U S is winning in spite of her. But really what, what I think we should maybe recenter the discussion on is that this way of playing has been effective and really in two consecutive World Cup knockout games, the ability of the U.S. to adjust, even if you don't like the five-four-one, has won the day. Yeah. So I was listening to um, the Guardian podcast, and, and Jonathan Wilson, who is the maestro on tactics, right, um, was on. He is on yeah. regularly, and yeah. uh, he asked this question. He said, "Why does the U.S. with uh, superior or equal levels of, of, of quality and talent in their sure. ranks uh, to the opposition invite pressure by going at to that five at the back so early as they did against England. They didn't go that mm-hmm. early against France, but against England, yes. Why mm-hmm. does a superior team that um, wins everything invite pressure? And uh, Max yes. Rushton, who's the host, um, responded by citing Ellis's record, which is, you know, <laughs> what you've <laughs> cited privately to me, which is she's uh, got one well, draw in the world in the World Cup. Twelve and, and one. Twelve and one, right. Yeah, I, I think he used that same number that she's she's unbeaten <laughs> in thirteen matches. So uh, but but Wilson was asking the question because he's genuinely again a British journalist, but we know Jonathan Wilson is the most cosmopolitan football journalist in the English language. Uh, possibly, you know, arguably the most cosmopolitan, most well-read, most well-studied. So he's watched the U.S. women a lot. And he's just curious as to why in these last um, few matches in the knockout stage, they have gone to the five at the back when they had been comfortable, in his opinion, prior to that. But at the same time, they've gotten through all those matches, correct? Yeah, they and have. She knows, and she knows the fitness levels of her players better than we do. So... Perhaps there's also a fitness reason when you're running a gauntlet in a World Cup knockout stage that you have to go to that very kind of defensive posture at a certain point. Well, I mean, they've, they've gotten through them, Cardick, and they've, you know, and again, um, one thing I thought was, you know, maybe they went to it too early against Sigmund for sure. Uh, but there's also an argument that, that when the U.S. applied some levels of of counter pressure um, that it really unraveled England and that England got sloppier with the ball and that it kind of made it easier for the England, for England, uh, for the U S to kind of seize control of the game. And, but for, you know, an exceptionally good ball by Jill Scott, uh, you know, maybe we're not really discussing 
that quite as much, but England has really good players too. And kind of mid play. I'm not sure that anything the U.S. did tactically invited that pressure. Do you disagree? No, I, I agree. I mean, in fact, I think the the issue with England and the pressure being invited is more about um, Phil Neville maybe getting his team sheet wrong and overthinking things. Sure. We talked a lot before the game about he was going to try and overload the flanks and would he actually do that? Well, we saw that. We saw that in the way Rachel Daly was playing in the match. Um, Lucy Bronze was uh, very poor in this match. I think maybe she was she – was, uh, in between her defensive and attacking responsibilities because of the way the setup was. Yeah. And Frank Kirby and Georgia Stanaway were both left on the bench. So when F- Frank Kirby comes on, the match fundamentally changes. That, that and Rose Lavelle getting injured fundamentally changes to the match to where I think we're, we're, we're forgetting how the first 50 or 55 minutes of this match played out with the U.S. being up 2-1 to one, but being clearly the better side. Yeah. Then – then after Kirby comes on and Lavelle goes uh, goes off injured, England were clearly the better side. I think it had to do partly with Neville's uh, squad selection mistakes. And then Stanaway doesn't come on until very late. Now, my point being that um, as good as um, as there, that England were at times in this match, um, even in the first half, and as good as Jill Scott was dribbling through players, doing the things she's done for years um, – the, the, the English midfield didn't really get a hold of the game until until the second half. And at right. that point, when that happens, Ellis adjusts. So I, I, I think it was almost, if you're going to criticize a manager for, for tactical mistakes, and, and believe me, if you listen to the English press, they're not worried about Jill Ellis's tactics. They're talking about Neville's squad selection, which I have some sympathy for because England, as I wrote um, at, at, at our site at the Yanks are coming, uh, Neil is 20 deep in, in, in field players, right? And without Jordan Nobbs, who's been injured, who's not in this tournament, um, they have been trying to figure out the midfield the whole time, right? Their, their best midfielder uh, was injured for the tournament. So he's been rotating a lot, and he's been forced to move players around a lot to get the desired effect. And when you play the best team in the world, you – if you're a manager, you can't just play them straight up, right? So, so Neville's thinking, okay, maybe I overload that right side and put pressure on, uh, on what he thought was going to be Megan Rapino and uh, Crystal Dunn. Now, it turned out Rapino didn't play, and it was, uh, um, it was uh, Christian Press who was a little bit better defensively also. So, um, <laughs> yeah. so he might have outfunked himself, but that's what you do in these sorts of matches. So I, I have I cut him some slack also, but the point, uh, Neil, being that I think the U.S. Um, adjustment and English domination of the last 30 minutes of the match have a lot to do with these factors I've talked about, not to do with Jill Ellis being a, a bad manager, which seems to be the narrative many want to paint. Well, I think I think you – look, I think you bring up two really important points, which is one uh, – Really, for the second straight match, Ellis got the better of the opposing manager, which yes. is really all you kind of want. Um, it's all you want your manager to do in the end. Um, and maybe it's maybe that's reductionist and, and you want your manager to do a little more. But uh, she certainly got the better of, of Phil Neville. And, yeah. um, you know, I thought I thought Phil Neville was was outcoached and he was outcoached largely because he's not coached women before. Um, in my opinion. So here, here's my rare TYC hot take. I, like, I think you start with, with the decision to start Carly Telford over Karen Bardsley. Um, 
it is kind of odd. Uh, Barnes is a better shot stopper. You'd think that would be more valuable against the Americans. Um, Telford made some odd distribution decisions, I thought. Uh, he also goes to the four four two, but he starts Demi Stokes, uh, which is one of the ones that people haven't talked as much about, which I thought was strange just because Alex Greenwood is so much more well-equipped for that type of game. Yeah, um, and, I, and especially Cody so... Rose Lavelle off the dribble, right? Like, yeah, um, you know, Greenwood is like tough and physical and kind of the type of, of defender who can put in a crunching tackle. So on that, Neil, there was a one specific caller to 606. Yes, I'm, I'm reminding our listeners I listen to all the British shows. So <laughs> a one specific caller to the BBC 606 immediately after the game that identified what you just said about Stokes and that particularly Lavelle um, was, was, was toying with her off the dribble and um, her positioning was never quite right in, in, in the first half of the match because uh, she was accounting for, for Lavelle's movement. Yeah. And that... Uh, Greenwood would have been the better option. And if you want to bring Stokes off the bench for attacking uh, prowess when you're behind in the match in the second half, by all means, Phil Neville do that. So um, no one in the U.S. media or actually the British press have identified that. But a caller, a fan who called it the 606 uh, was uh, this guy was raving mad about that decision, saying that decision is what cost England uh, the World Cup was uh, not starting Greenwood and starting Stokes. Uh, You could argue that, quite frankly. Yeah, I mean, I think you can argue that that, and that's just those two are just in the tip of the iceberg, and they're all in defense. So yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, the other thing is, once you more or less switch your formation, you have to leave Fran Kirby on the bench, probably. Yeah. Um, Jody Taylor was, you know, who knows if she was ever going to play in this game? It's hard to say. Um, but I think, you know, it was just an odd decision to start Rachel Daly. Like, I get why he did it. I think it was about familiarity with opponent, about having somebody that, you know, can get in defensively. It was about solidifying the defense on that wing, but they really needed Jill Scott and Georgia Sanway, and and they didn't bring Sanway until the 89th. So, you know, what happens, I think, Cardick, is maybe, and we've kind of talked through to where I can articulate the point better, which is sometimes what happens on these podcasts. Um, but, criticism of Ellis sometimes happens in a vacuum, right? And yeah, that's not fair in the sense that like Ellis makes the decisions and you still have to get these substitution decisions right. You still have to put Morgan Bryan in when Cheney can't go. You still have to play Kristen Press and not Mallory Pugh. Um, you still have to make those sorts of choices. You still have to make the adjustment to solidify the midfield when it looks like France is seizing the game by the throat um, in the first 40 minutes in Paris. You, you know, these are things that have to be done by coaches, and Ellis has just gotten those right. So I'm all for thinking that some of the decisions she makes is weird, and I thought it was odd that she continued to tinker all the way through the She Believes Cup. But at this World Cup, particularly in the knockout stages, I, I think she deserves our admiration and praise. And arguably is in a position to outcoach another person in Serena Wigman in the World Cup final, although all Serena Wigman does is win. Yeah, I, I, so let's take a look at the Dutch. Let's transition <laughs> uh, to the Dutch. And, and I know uh, there are a lot of people out there who are saying, well, the two toughest teams to beat 
um, are France and were France and, and England. They're the, they're the other two giants right now in the women's game. So this is a fait accompli. If you take that attitude, you're going to lose. Okay, I'll be. I'll admit I took that attitude in 2011. Although having you know conceded that Japan had beaten Germany, who we thought was the best team in the women's game then, but I said, right, yeah, we beat right. Brazil, we beat France. Uh, Sweden is out. I, I never want to play Sweden, which was another reason I was glad the Dutch won this, this match. I was telling people, even though we made easy work of Sweden in the group stage, just historically, the U.S. women do not want to play Sweden with something on the line. They will probably beat us. That was my, my take. So once the Swedes lost and we're having this conversation, it's like, okay, hard work's done. Sweden's out. Uh, nah. We beat France. We beat England. It, it, it's done. No, well, no, it isn't. And let's talk about the Dutch uh, – Neil, you have a great story on this Dutch team, uh, which ran last weekend. Yanks are coming. And what we have seen is a country that, because they were awarded hosting rights to the Euro 2017 tournament, began to invest heavily in women's football, almost Euro for Euro. Maybe not quite Euro for Euro, but really heavily invest uh, compared to the men. And they uh, qualified for the first, their first Women's World Cup in 2015. They then host the 2017 Euros. They win it. Uh, they win it in, in very, very um, classic fashion. Then they qualify for the World Cup by beating the Danes uh, in the playoff, who they had also beaten in the final of the Euros. Denmark being a really good team who's not at this World Cup. Yeah. A, a team that would have been, yeah. I think, a contender to at least make the quarterfinals or semifinals. Uh, they finished behind Norway in that group, but that Norway, we know how good Norway is. And in this World Cup, uh, there have been question marks, but they have just won. And as they've won, we have seen a, a situation where when a player needs to step up to, 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 to get uh, the Netherlands through whichever round it's been, they have stepped up. So yeah. they have a, a situation now where I think they have so many tested, tried and tested players at the major tournament level. And then obviously Martins, who scored a lot of goals in this tournament, uh, was also a big part of why Barcelona made it all the way to the Champions League final this past season. Uh, they also won the Oligarch Cup recently. I can't remember what year that was, but uh, sometime recently they won the Oligarch Cup. So this is a team you cannot sleep on. No, they don't have the names that England has um, or France, but they are they have proven – that maybe their tournament pedigree is better than those countries, quite frankly. Uh, they've won 13 straight games in competition. So um, they're pretty good. Yeah, uh, right. right. <laughs> you don't have to go uh, any further than that, but I know you will. Do we need, like, you know, do we? Uh, so I think it's weird. All I can say is having seen them twice in person, I guess what people think is. The, the, the story behind them is Dark Horses was that they're really relying on their their front three and that after that, they, you know, don't have a tremendous midfield and we don't know who their stars are in defense. So, like, I guess there's questions there. Um, and there's also this narrative that's developed that they won the Euro by scoring a lot of goals, which go back, like, really, what's so funny about that is how lazy it is and how it <laughs> largely, how it largely comes from, I think, soccer writers who, who, what's, uh, what's the, you know, let, let's just say they airdrop in every four years to cover the yeah. World Cup. Like, Cardiff, you can dismantle that argument by using Wikipedia. <laughs> like, if you wiki the knockout stages, it's clean sheet, clean sheet clean sheet and then in the final they needed all the goals 
Look, as um, someone who follows uh, yeah. England uh, closely, you know, not as close as I follow the U.S., but uh, follow them fairly closely, I'm still horrified by England's performance in the semifinals. It wasn't merely that the Dutch scored goals. It was that defensively they had a solidity and you couldn't get the ball off them once they took the lead. That was right. – I, mean, I, I don't know where this argument, this very strange yeah. argument comes from. They obviously yeah. haven't watched any of those games. No, it's really strange. Um, so – you know, like we said, that that's really weird. Um, but to me, the biggest difference between the European champion Dutch and and the and it's what I wrote at Yanks are coming. So check that article out if you have it. Is the midfield and that it's just better. And I write that saying that I don't think their front three has really gotten it all together at this tournament. I think, and I'll let you kind of discuss that. But um, it, it's a really formidable group. Uh, as good a group as the Americans have, if we're being frank. Um, I don't know if it's better, but it's as good. So the question really becomes, you know, Jill Ellis finally discovers what a midfield is by putting Sammy Mewis in, in the She Believes Cup. And so, meanwhile, the Dutch have been improving their midfield um, for a while. And mainly the difference is Jackie Grunin has become sort of a nice role player at Chelsea to like, the first big time foreign signing by Manchester United and a player that has a much more complete game has become kind of a complete eight instead of a six, Uh, you know, kind of a, she was sort of a defensive stopper is not, you know, we saw her take her goal well to win the semifinal match. I think she's been one of the best players in the tournament. And she's also really continued to do all the defensive work at a tournament where, uh, Von Descendant has not been very good, and that's who's in front of her. So, uh, you know, Jackie Grunin is is a, a really underrated player and a player who can give the U.S. some problems. Yeah, so your, your point about the midfield is very well taken. I think if – and I don't know what the status of Rose Lavelle is for this final. Um, if she's not able to go – I think you might be looking at the Dutch having an advantage there. Granted, the U.S. has an advantage – uh, just yeah. about everywhere else on the pitch. But I think that midfield, particularly if you, you, you're, you're now looking at these matches in quadrants and you're thinking if you're the Dutch, you have to get through the first 15 or 20 minutes without conceding, you have a midfield that can hold the ball. I think what we saw with England is uh, without Fran Kirby in the match, without Georgia Stanaway in the match, you saw uh, England trying to, to push the ball uh, out to the flanks in those first 10 minutes. And panic defending, a lot of panic defending, which led directly to a U.S. goal where, where Lucy Bronze uh, is not sure. I don't think she's even sure where Kristen Press is on that finish on, on the first U.S. goal. I don't think we're going to see that from the Dutch. So the U.S. is going to have to get their, their goal in the first 12 minutes, which we've seen in every game in this tournament another way. Potentially, it comes from a set piece like it did against France, right? Uh, maybe you get lucky and you get a penalty call like you did against Spain. Yeah. But I think this game is going to look a lot more like the Spain game than it will like the France and England game. And if you think yeah, about this, if you think of, yeah, and if you think about this logically, not 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 uh, throwing out reputations of of the teams that the U.S. played, throwing out the, uh, the 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 round in which they played them. The Spain game was actually a tougher game for the United States because I think the France and England game, the U.S. was well on top and well in control when things began to go the other way. Whereas the Spain game, I'm not sure the U.S. was really ever in control of that match, even after taking the lead 
in the second half. That match was a little more, at least for me as someone who watches um, this team closely and uh, knew a lot about France and England, know an awful lot about England. Uh, to me, the Spain game still loses as being a little more uncomfortable. That, that was the match the U.S. was going to lose in route to the final. It was probably going to be that game. Yeah, I mean, look, it, it kind of felt it felt touch and go for sure. Uh, you know, although to be fair to England, certainly in the second half, as as we've discussed, yeah, that there right, were moments right. where, uh, you know, I guess if you're being brutal about it, you could say they were quote unquote bailed out by VAR and and uh, Houghton didn't hit a great penalty, um, but uh, you know. The VAR call was right, and Alyssa made a save. So yeah. there's, you know, two sides to that coin. I just think it will be that it will be a tougher game. Then you know the Dutch have been difficult to break down. You can talk about the side of the bracket they've been on all you want, but um, you know certainly the most dynamic team they played was Japan, and they spent a lot of time on the back foot, but they found yep. a way to win that game uh, largely because they were able to kind of stabilize the midfield late from Grunin, who it looked like had suffered an injury around the 60th minute and kind of just fought through it. And then they stabilized the midfield in the last 10 minutes and then they get a great play by Leakey Martins, which is what I wanted you to discuss because their front three, I think, uh, like if you thought Ellen White was good at diagnosing space between center backs and pulling them apart, then the U.S. really have to get that corrected. Like you've seen a, a piece, of, a chink of the ar- U.S. armor that that uh, the Dutch can exploit. Uh, yeah. So let's let's go specifically to the U.S. side of that. The amount of space and the gaps that were opened up between Salbrun and Dalcomper were uh, when the U.S. were playing four at the back uh, was very disturbing. And I think we have we have been nervous that this might happen when you play against a better opponent, it didn't happen against France, but it certainly happened against England. And Ellen White is, um, as I talked about on the previous show, and I talked about in my, uh, in my answer coming article, a player that has never been an out and out goal scorer. She's been more of a traditional English number nine that can hold up the ball, can create space and pull defenders apart, opening space up for others. Well, what's happened in this tournament is she's done that aspect of of her job and she scored the goals and the U S were, seemingly unable to uh, cope with her movement and her proficiency of movement. So if you thought that was bad, now we've got three attackers led by Martins who essentially do that also. Uh, and Medema is a, is, is a young attacking player that is so, so good. I mean, she's 61, one of the best. 61 goals and she's 23 in a week. Wow. Okay, so I didn't realize she was she had that many international goals. Thank you for that stat. But I was about to say she is one of the best young players in women's football anywhere on the planet. Um, but that that number bears out that she might be the very best. Uh, she is especially good at, at at running the channels when space is opened up by others. She's especially good at identifying that little pocket of space and, and, and moving into it immediately. And so what might happen is done in you know unfortunately we talk more and more about this with var uh, um, about moments more than the picture and the u.s has generally won those moments including nair making a save on a houghton's penalty which would have equalized the match given england all the momentum um there could be moments in this match where the dutch uh the, overall their quality isn't where the u.s is 
where they excel. And in this tournament, in those moments, much like the U.S., they have risen to the occasion. Yeah, and I think that's there. There are two things that people have. There are two things that people have been missing about the Dutch when they analyze them, because I think a lot. There's, you know, our friend Kimberly McCauley, I think, has missed it, um, which is rare to say about Kimberly. But, um, you know, I saw her tweet that. Uh, we're going to talk ourselves into this game being hard and the U S are going to win, you know, four or five, two. And I, I just don't see uh, that being true for two reasons. One, um, Medina is one of the best players that the U S have faced. Leaky Martins is a world player of the year. Like when you talk about how to beat the U S they still check the boxes that England and France check because they have those players that are individually capable of, of the brilliance required to break apart the United States. Um, yeah. Do I think that the Dutch need to play better? Yes. I think that, you know, the U.S. are great sometimes at corralling individual talents and kind of shutting them down with help. Uh, that's the collaborative, some of all parts aspect of the U.S. that we all admire. And I think Medima at 22 can be a little selfish sometimes and forget that, like, Leakey Martins is the world player of the year from a couple years ago that plays right next to her. Um, or they, you know, can forget that you know Von Descendant is an important part of a Champions League team, or that Berenstein, who sometimes plays in that spot, uh, you know, is a really nice player who can beat you one on one. Another big challenge for Crystal Dunn. But the other thing is that we're thinking that that I think is is problematic about that line of thinking is just that the Dutch have a way of of playing the game on their terms, which is a little different than you know the U S Japan games that we've seen in 2015 and 2011. Yeah. So this is, this is the other thing about the Dutch that, that uh, worry me is that they have an ability to take the air out of matches. As you said, play the, play the matches on their terms. I, I haven't seen that from France in any major tournament, which is why, okay. I think the stuff that uh, Kimberly McCauley, who usually she gets a spot on, um, the stuff she's saying about the Dutch, I will admit, I said about the French and Neil. You know, <laughs> nah, the French, the French. If it's a big game, they're going to go to pieces. They're not going to be able to dictate tempo. They're not really a threat. Um, in the end, I, I was right, even though the U.S. two-one scoreline looks a little less comfortable than I felt like during the game. I never thought during that match the French were going to equalize. I never felt like the French were going to win. But the Dutch have an ability to kind of de- deceive you and fool you, which to me, um, is very, very reminiscent of, 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 of some of the, uh, the teams on, on uh, the men's level. I mean, I, I remember uh, the Euro 2008 uh, tournament, men's tournament, uh, when Spain did that. And we were, we were fawning, actually, in that tournament all over the Dutch. Yeah. The Dutchmen, who were scoring a lot of goals, but then got undid in a, you know, a huge upset to Russia. But they, you know, they were always vulnerable. Uh, they were outscoring people. The criticism of the Dutch women that they outscore people that was really applying to the Dutch men in 2008. Spain just very efficiently went through the tournament, and uh, once they got a lead in the final against Germany, it was over. Even though it was only a one-nil scoreline, I feel that way about this Dutch team. That watching them in the group stage, so even um, it, the one-nil, uh, and I know here, here are the critiques, right? That they were in 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 what some people may perceive. As a weak group, yet they only had a one nil over New Zealand, who historically is the weakest team or one of the weakest teams in, in women's World Cup competition. 
Uh, they struggled uh, against Cameroon at times. Um, Cameroon proved not to be that bad aside. But these are the critiques that we've heard. Yet in each of those games, when the Dutch took the lead, it was done, right? They were so efficient in, in and they don't have the ruthlessness necessarily to then put you to the sword and score 13 goals like the U.S. has or um, some other uh, top sides through the years. Uh, the Germans used to be infamous for doing that in the women's game. Uh, they get you, you they, you'd be down 2-0 to them, and before you knew <laughs> it, it will be 10-0 um, with Germany in its heyday about a decade ago. The Dutch aren't like that. They, they just, they're very efficient in keeping the ball in midfield and, and uh, contracting the spaces in which you can play on the counter and, and just being very tactically smart. And I saw this against Canada, right? So th- that final group game, they score in, uh, I think, the 70th minute or 75th minute. And Canada um, really didn't get a sniff after that, what felt like a sniff. The Japan game um, we can talk about, and, and I think like the Spain game for the U.S., which was the same day, if I recall correctly, that was the game where things didn't go as well as they probably should have. And Jill Ellis accordingly made uh, tactical ch- changes or, and the way she viewed tactics in-game. Uh, that, that have gotten the U.S. through the next two rounds, I would say the same thing about the Dutch. The Italy match, in spite of the Italians' um, aggressive play, uh, Neil, for lack of a better term, they're almost naive attacking <laughs> scent that they brought into this tournament, and, and we loved them for it. Uh, the Dutch, never, I never felt like Holland was going to lose that match. And then the Sweden game, uh, there were moments that it didn't look so good, but again, I... Never really thought the Dutch were going to lose that match. Just that, uh, and certainly that's... in the second half, it never appeared that they were in, in the second half in an extra time. It really there were, it yeah. was very rare for it to appear that they were they were in any trouble. And the victory over uh, Italy, as you said, was I mean that's about as comprehensive as you can win a World Cup quarterfinal. So I just don't. Some of it is kind of it's still kind of mysterious to me how you know they weren't considered a pre-tournament favorite, but rather just a dark horse. Um. When really, you know, other than the second half of the Japan match, which certainly, you know, they won against the run of play, uh, they haven't been outplayed in any game. Canada had 20 good minutes, essentially. Um, And then, as you said, when the Netherlands scored in the 75th minute, I mean, it was over. Canada couldn't get the ball. Yeah. And and that's what happened against Italy also. Uh, And, and, I, I will concede that Italy came into this tournament. Uh, they, they're one of the stories of the tournament. Yeah, it was they, a great story. Uh, right, they were, but they were very naive in the way they approached a lot of these matches. So uh, first World Cup in 20 years, um, a women's program that's now burgeoning thanks to Juventus and some other clubs. So uh, maybe that's not the best example. But I think the Canada game and the Sweden game kind of show you that Sweden game in the, in the semifinals, even when um, – Sweden hit the post and, and there were some dramatic saves. I just never felt like the Dutch were going to lose the match. You were waiting for the goal the whole time. And that's what efficient teams do. That's what the Spanish men for years did. So um, that's the concern here for the U.S. is that you could end up in a match uh, similar to Japan in 2011. Uh, and, I, and I think the people who have been cautious about this tournament have pointed to that specific right. match yeah. and circled it and said, you have to be concerned about that sort of final again because uh yeah. the Japan- japanese kept coming at the U- at the americans even when we had the lead and they just um the the, the u.s their opportunities to to open the game up in that match were in spite of japan chasing the game for much of that time 
uh, for those of you who don't remember 2011, the final, um, were, were, were limited. And um, they were very tactical. So this is there's a difference between teams that fall behind and then just attack with a reckless abandon and leave huge gaps at the back. And there are teams that are very tactical, saying, okay, we're down 1-0 or we're down 2-1. Let's, keep, let's at worst keep the scoreline like that until the 80th minute. And I think from what we've seen of the Dutch, even though they haven't been behind in this tournament, um, they're that type of side where you're, the idea of, of scoring five goals against them in the first half, it's just probably not going to happen, yeah. even if they fall behind one or two nil early one. So, I mean, I think it's been it's interesting to see the way that the Dutch have handled the media. Danielle Van de Donk, who played for the Arsenal team that just won the WSL, I mean, talking about how uh, they loved their embrace in the underdog role. The line she had uh, that was the great line of, of media yesterday was uh, – the U.S. media don't even think we're good. <laughs> like, <laughs> which is, you know, I mean, look, um, we, you know, and we, Leek and Martins, we mentioned that she's World Player of the Year, that she's a person who, you don't win that award if you're not good. Um, that Barca, who had never really, you know, we hadn't seen much from them in, in women's football, and, and they make the Champions League final behind Leek and Martins, right? So, like, we know what an influential, influential player she is, and she plays next to Medima, who has the 61 goals. And Von Descendants has been a star at Lyon. So they, there are weapons. And then there's, you know, the, the obvious talent of Jackie Grunin and, and the midfield. And a defense that uh, has just posted consecutive clean sheets in the, semi, in the quarters in the semis. So um, it's going to be a big challenge for the United States. Do I think they're up for it? Of course. But, but uh, let's dispel with the fiction that this is going to be easy. And Ron Vendenhall, as, as a keeper, I saw in the FA Cup final a few years ago against Manchester City just have to play a blinder in a final. So, yeah. um, so I, again, you know, a, a, as far as the keeper goes, I think uh, they're in very good hands, uh, the Dutch. So the fiction or, or the um, maybe lack of reputation the Dutch have, let's, let's uh, concede that, maybe not say that it's, it's outright fiction – why um, is it that in a women's game where we have countries taking it more seriously all the time, particularly Western European countries, Neil, that we get this uh, conversation where if a country doesn't have a historic pedigree, we're not respecting them? Because the thing is, this, I think, is fundamentally different than the men's game. Men's game, it's very difficult to break through. You only have a handful of countries in almost 100 years now that have won a men's world cup, right? And you only get a handful of countries that win major continental competitions. Uh, the Greeks being a huge exception in 2004. Uh, but uh, maybe that shows exceptions can happen even in the men's game. Uh, the, uh, but why is it that we're sleeping on the Dutch? Is it that historic pedigree? Is it the, the thought that the French and the English have done their time? They've gotten to semifinals and quarterfinals of uh, England has now been to this quarterfinal of better for successive women's world cups. Um, and they're consistently contending in the Euros, uh, got to a Euro final in 2009. Is it that we think that you have to do your time to be taken seriously if uh, you're looking at it from the top of the pyramid as we are in the United States? Isn't that an interesting, an interesting dynamic that you bring up, Cardick? Because, I, like, you know, it's so funny to me that, uh, that a team that, that's won every competition they played in since 2017. 2017... Euro champion, 2018 Algarve Cup champion, as you mentioned. Uh, we can't get 
a level of respect for them beyond, oh, they're a nice dark horse because they aren't quite there. But the problem that I have with that is, well, I have two problems with that, really. And I guess I maybe I'm overdoing it with respect to the Netherlands, um, but I'm just trying to prepare people for the possibility that, that the Dutch will win and <laughs> what the fallout from that might be. Um, they were World Cup debutantes in Canada. Okay, so this is their second World Cup, and they're in the final. Now, that's um, – but you're right. There's some, like, level of nouveau riche to that. We saw it in the men's game with, like, the inability of longtime fans in England to respect Chelsea, like post-Abramovich, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Um, but it's worse to me in, in women's soccer because – for two reasons. One, it's elitist. Uh you know, one, one, it's elitist. It's like this idea that if you're not Germany or, or France, uh, or Japan, then, you know, we're going to talk ourselves into thinking you're good, but you're not capable of beating the United States, which is silly. Uh, second, it, it's the worst type of elitism because, it runs counter to this argument that's been advanced in media circles for over a decade, which is that, uh, well, if you just invent, if another country just invested, they could catch the U.S. so quickly. And now, <laughs> so you have a situation where another country has invested and is in the World Cup final against the U.S., and you're like, well, they can't beat the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> right. It contradicts the argument. No, we've heard from a lot of critics of the U.S. Yeah, program. No, frankly, it's elitist trash. And, and, and so, um, you know, yeah. I mean, like Holland, the Dutch, the Netherlands. Croix called it Holland. I'm going to call it Holland. Um, you know, that's, that's how they wanted to do things. They wanted to make massive investments in the game. And, you know, some of the Dutch fans I talked to uh, in France were – you know, talking about the way that women's football has really caught on in the country, how, you know, yeah, it took hosting the Euros for people to realize that, that it was amazing, but, but there they were. And so, um, you know, suddenly, uh, suddenly now they're, they're in a world cup final and we're, we haven't even mentioned the fact that probably for the second time in this tournament with the first time being the quarterfinals, the U.S. won't have a decided fan advantage either because the Dutch fans are going to storm the streets of Lyon and buy as many tickets. Yeah. In fact, in fact I think they're being uh, told to. I mean, as we record this on Friday morning, two, two night, um, days before the kickoff, about 48 hours before we kick off. So, uh, Neil, we're going to leave it there, and we'll be back a- after the tournament. I don't want to ask for predictions because predictions can be any number of things. In a final, I would just caution our listeners – Anything can happen. You might have a penalty in the first 10 minutes that changes the uh, complexion of the match. We saw that in the, in the Men's Champions League final. You might have a sending off that changes the complexion of a match. You might have an injury. Um, finals, are usually, finals are usually terrible yeah. with, with the exception of Women's Euro Cup finals. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. I think the U.S.-Japan finals, both of them were classics in 11 and 15. Uh, the Germany, uh, the Germany-Brazil final in 2007 was pretty good. Yeah, yeah, you, you, you've convinced me with this argument. Um, <laughs> and it, it's hard to believe after that 2007, Martha never got back uh, even to a semifinal. But, yeah. Um, 
which is kind of a tragedy. That that's maybe uh, think about Marta when we talk about post tournament when we do our post tournament show. But again, you can check us out at yanksercoming.com. Uh, check us out on Twitter at yanksercoming. And uh, is is it yanksercoming? The handle? Yeah. Yep. And then Neil is at NW Blackman. I'm at KKFLA737. And enjoy the final, and we will catch.